With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. We've heard such a lot these last little while, these last few years, about disinformation and misinformation. And we have a thing called the, what is it, the Disinformation Project. It started out of COVID when the government was, for COVID matters, the one source of truth. And um, there was research being done on people that weren't sending the truth, but it's morphed and grown and got bigger, and it's starting to look at white supremacy and racism and all the rest of it. Very hard to understand. We've been lucky because there's a wonderful substack uh, called A Halfling's View. I think I've got that right. And we have the author, and the author is none other than Judge David Harvey. Good morning, Judge. Good morning, Rodney. How are you? You're a retired judge. I am retired because I guess if you I, I can a, I can I can say these things now that I'm retired. Yes, I imagine if you were a practicing judge, you would have to keep quiet. Yes, yep. muzzled. Yeah, muzzled. Yeah. Did you find that quite tough? Yes, very. Be- uh, be- and 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 there were occasions when I pushed the boundaries. I think I might remember some of those now that I cast my mind back. I think you might have been in the news pushing boundaries. Yes, that's right. What happened? Oh, some of it was decision stuff and some of it was points of view. And part of it arose as a result of my involvement with teaching internet law. Mm. And there was was stuff going around about the internet uh, at the time and still is that was completely wrong and needed to be corrected. So I sort of stepped out of role and um, and tried to um, correct it. So you were teaching law yes, and teaching internet law, which yes. is a new thing. Yeah. And were you doing that while a judge? Yes. Yeah, I, I do the, um, the judicial work during the day, and then I teach my class in the evenings, two, two evenings a week. Because that could become a complicated scenario because you you can be teaching and say things that as a judge you should not, but you're doing it as a teacher. Yeah, you needed to be careful about that. Um, Did you enjoy being a judge? Oh, very, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'd probably still be doing it if they hadn't, uh, if Parliament, your uh, former friends, uh, hadn't said 75 is the absolute time when acting warrants end and so on and so forth. Um, otherwise, I'd probably still be there. I, I, yes, I did enjoy it. It was it was a wonderful job. It was uh, it was challenging, um, and it allowed uh, it allowed you to do stuff that was meaningful for the mm. community. And mm. uh, and to be of service to the community, and that's very for me. That's very important. Did you find some cases distressing? Yes, sure. You must feel, but you, but you, you, you know, the the important thing is to remain objective. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, for example, I did a, a recent Substack on the Hamas uh, incursion into Israel on the 7th of October um, last year. And I'd taken some um, uh, passages from a New York Times report by uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist called Jeff Gittleman. Now, these were really, really brutal. Um, Now, I I read them through, and, you know, 32 years being a judge, you don't see it all, but you see an awful lot. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to publish this stuff, I'm going to have to put in all sorts of warnings because I don't, you know, it it was pretty horrifying, but it didn't prompt an emotional response, let's put it that way. From an objective Mm. point of view, it was dreadful. From a subjective point of view, you just put that to one side. And, um, yeah, so you learn how to deal with that sort of thing. Yes, I, I, I have some horrible 
horrible cases. One case that I heard, in fact, one of the lawyers was so distressed by it that she gave up practice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And you would often find yourself dealing with a sort of tragic sector of society. Very much so. Um, I spent um, 20, 20 years plus, uh, because when I got my acting warrant, I went back to South Auckland, but for 20 years on the, on the trot, I was in South Auckland. My goodness. Um, and that was, yeah, <laughs> that was, it was unique. Um, I was out at um, Manukau Court on Thursday last for the swearing-in of, of a colleague, and um, I thought, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to sit really anywhere else. Um, it was, um, it was an inspiring, inspiring, challenging, wonderful place to work. Terrific court staff, um, people of all different uh, sectors of the community uh, were seeking our services and seeking assistance. And it was, um, yeah, it was terrific. Um, and we had a terrific common room there. The judges at Manukau, um have a, a wonderful sense of humour, which you've got to have, otherwise you'd go crazy. <laughs> to play along with the modern era, and I see you, which uh, listeners can't, and I was shocked to learn you're 75, so congratulations. Uh, 77 now, Ron. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, you do look a little white. You the do hair. look you know, everything. You yeah. do look you do look a little male. Oh, you mean the old white male? Oh yes. Oh yes. heavens. I've yeah, I had an interesting experience with that. I was at a conference some years ago where I made some comment about something and somebody said, Oh, that's the type of thing that I'd expect from an old white privileged male. And I said, Congratulations, you got four discriminatory categories in the one sentence. <laughs> Ah, dear. Yep. So guilty as charged. Guilty, guilty as, charged. as charged. Nothing we can do about it. You no mitigation at all. Yes, <laughs> we can be sitting here, the grumpy two white old men, happy in our privilege. Now tell me, why do you write a substack? Um, uh, well, point one, I enjoy writing. Um, point two, well, I should say I have a column in the listener every fortnight as well. Mm. Um, point two, I I like long form. Point three, I like analysis. Point four, I like to try and deal with things dispassionately, objectively, and based on uh, evidential uh, uh, foundations. And um, point five, I suppose, I like to exercise my freedom of expression. Mm. I've got a point of view, and I I want to share it. Good. Well, I enjoy I enjoy receiving it and reading Thank it. You. Now, how do we find your Substack for listeners that are listening? This is Judge David Harvey, retired judge, writes beautifully, um, writes great analysis of contemporary events. He's on point. Uh, how do how would someone find your Substack? DJH DCJ six letters. Used to be David John Harvey District Court Judge, which is which is where that comes from. Dot substack dot com. There you go, and it's titled a Halfling's View. Yeah, so they could also Google a Halfling's View. They could. Yeah, do you like the Hobbit? <laughs> yes. Hey Rodney, I won Mastermind in nineteen eighty one with the Lord of the Rings. So oh, really? the answer is yes. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, if I were to zoom and switch, switch the camera around, I, you could you could see the Tolkien Library, but I won't do that because it's a mess. Well, Tolkien, what a remarkable man! Who yeah. Tolkien? Yes, absolutely fabulous. And, and C.S. Lewis, and that they were yes. colleagues. Yes, and that they fed off each other so amazingly well. And they drank together at a pub called the Burden Bar, or the Eagle and Child, in Oxford, where I've been, and I've sat in this snug. So, yeah, my goodness. And then their war experience, which would be. Tolkien's war experience was First World War. I yes. can't remember if Lewis, if Lewis, a war experience, but Tolkien certainly did. He was on the Somme, and he was invalided out 
um, with some uh, uh, trench fever. Did you enjoy the movie? The Jackson movie? Yes. Yes, very much. Um, I, I actually was asked to um, advise on aspects of it. So, um, yes, I did enjoy it. I loved it. Mm. I thought it was fabulous. And there, there are scenes there which are lumps in the throat and tears in the eyes. Um, fabulous. Fabulously done. It is, to anyone that hasn't read the book or books or volumes, it is a treasure trove, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And now I love I love Lord of the Rings. Funny enough, I didn't enjoy the movie. Oh. Um, but I suspect it's because I had read the book and formulated in my view how everything was. Oh, you have your own vision, sure. Yes. And and I don't know. I've always I've never found a movie. Um, unless I saw the movie first before I read the book. So Dr. Chivago, I saw the movie first and then read the book, and I've always loved the movie. But because I'd read the book and it had such an impact on me, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, that when I saw the movie, it didn't have the – I mean, it was – I look, I loved the movie and 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 the and well done and fabulous, but to me it couldn't do justice to the book. Well, I missed things out. Yeah, uh, and, the, and the book was such in such a thoughtful thing. How far have we got from our topic? I'm going to have to bring I mean, us back to it, Judge. <laughs> You've written what I consider to be the best analysis of myths and disinformation in the Disinformation Project, and I don't want to interrupt you because you're clearly a person who can organize your thoughts and do your bullet points. And I have listeners that say, oh, you keep interrupting, and I agree with them. <laughs> Walk me through what this disinformation and misinformation and this project is all about, please. Okay. Um, I've got to get myself organized first. Um I think the starting point has got to be that, um, particularly with COVID and perhaps a little bit before, I think perhaps even with, with the, um, the rise of, of Trump's first presidency, um, there was a focus on the message, if you like. And uh, there was a developing intolerance for any contrary message. Uh, instead of um, characterizing that as, as wrong or, or anything like that, a couple of new words came into the lexicon, misinformation uh, and disinformation. And these words were employed with devastating effect during the COVID thing. Devastating. Because uh, what they were used for was for the purposes of dismissing any contrarian point of view. Uh, it doesn't matter if you were anti-vax, it doesn't matter if you were a scientist, it doesn't matter if you were an experienced epidemiologist, if you didn't conform to the party line, that was deemed to be either misinformation or even worse, disinformation. Now, misinformation they've uh, defined as being uh, an incorrect statement that is circulated uh, without the intention of causing harm. Uh, there's another word for it, rumor, uh, for Rodney, and it's rumor, mm. um, if you like. That's a mm. simple word, but, you know, um, these uh, Wellington bureaucrats and so on and so forth will always use more than one syllable if they possibly can. So misinformation became part of the lexicon. Disinformation is even worse. Disinformation is defined as a false statement that is circulated with the intention of causing harm or misleading people. There's another word for that. It's called a lie. Mm. Uh, Can I just uh, pause you there too? Because there seems to me to be a corollary that if you are labelling disinformation and misinformation, especially so if you're a government, then... The corollary is you have and you know the truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that was Which, the, podium of, the podium of truth. That's how the, the whole, that, that, that was the, the other side of it, wasn't it? Which is not something anyone rational claims 
in the sense that we're always open to the prospect that we could be wrong and that some of the most amazing scientific truths have been, through further understanding, found to be inadequate or incomplete or sometimes outright wrong. And so we've learnt as scientists and indeed um, as a sort of Christian thing to be humble about our knowledge. And this idea that you can label disinformation and misinformation, it's an enormous usurpation of power. Mm-hmm. Well, Galileo's um, disinformation was characterised as heresy. Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the church was, the Catholic church was the single source of truth. And um, if you disagreed, uh, you were a heretic, and there were all sorts of consequences that could be visited upon you. I mean, Galileo didn't actually get too hot, but he was deprived of his liberty for a considerable period of time. He's been, Galileo's been vindicated. Um, but it's, it's, it's an example. And I think part of the problem was that not only did you have the misinformation, disinformation thing that arose during COVID, but you also had uh, the Prime Minister who said in answer to a question from uh, Judith Collins that the government was the sole source of truth. Anything else she said with a grain of salt. So if it wasn't coming from the government, if it wasn't coming uh, from the podium of truth, um, be sceptical about it. Uh, In addition, as part of their messaging, uh, the government uh, set up or uh, organised with an outfit at Auckland University called Tupunaha Matatini to take over the messaging about the scientific um, information about COVID, about vaccines, and so on and so forth. Um, Part of Tupunaha Matatini um, involved people like Susie Wiles, Sean Hendy, uh, Peter Gluckman, uh, respected people in their own field. Uh, also, as part of uh, Te Punaha, was the Disinformation Project. And the Disinformation Project brief, essentially, was to deal with uh, disinformation or misinformation, rumour and lies, about uh, the contrary messaging that was coming through. Now, that's okay. That, that's that's not a problem. Um, I don't have any difficulty with an organisation set up to say, no, this is incorrect, and it is. there's no scientific basis for it, or the, the analysis of it is incorrect, or the, eviden- the evidential foundation for it is suspect, or something like that. At least it's part of the dialogue, but it isn't a shutdown. The problem is that the director of the Disinformation Project, Kate Hanna, had a particular approach to dealing with um, academic issues uh, and dealing with academic analysis. And she described it in a letter that she wrote to the Vice-Chancellor of Waikato University as a neo-Marxist approach. Now, the minute that you get into that, the bells start ringing Mm. because immediately you are dealing with a person who is approaching their topic from a critical theory point of view. And critical theory uh, is a a neo-Marxist approach to things that is based upon uh, the necessity for conflict pretty much in in every sort of situation. Now, as far as the disinformation project was concerned, the first paper that they did, which I think is still on their website, uh, was was pretty reasonable. Um, It it was on point, it was on topic, it was well-researched, it was well um, footnoted, um, n- not so much of a problem. It was what happened afterwards that they began to go off the rails. And they began to get involved in areas which was, in my view, beyond their brief. Uh, they started using highly emotive language. They would not provide any evidential foundation for anything that they said. So it was impossible to carry out an independent review of their sources or anything like that. Oh, says Sanjana Hatutawa, who was one of their researchers. 
We've been checking on Telegram for the last 24 hours. Great. Let's see it. Where is it? We've been checking on Facebook for such and such a period of time. Terrific. What proportion of total posts in Facebook uh, amounted to what you claim to be disinformation? So there was an absence of evidence. It was another of these trust us, we know what we're doing things. Mm. And uh, it, that, that continued. And the problem was it, it continued and continued and went way beyond COVID and began to get into areas like trans rights, misogyny, racism, all of the isms that are going on uh, that involve uh, a conflict between the empowered on the one hand and the disempowered on the other, which is fundamental to neo-Marxist uh, thinking and to critical theory. And uh, basically, in, in my view, the disinformation project lost its way, and more importantly, it lost its credibility. Now, I'm speaking um, not as, um, uh, well, I suppose I'm speaking as a critic on the one hand, but I'm also speaking from the point of view of a person, and like you, I've done a PhD, and I consider that it is most important if you are coming up uh, with a point of view that you've got to be rigorous in your approach. The disinformation project is anything but, anything but rigorous, but there's even more. Recently, and I, I mean like within the last six months, there came out of the Christchurch call, you remember the Christchurch Yes, indeed. Um, an expansion, if you like, of their terms of reference. Their terms of reference now include examining things like misogyny and transgender uh, stuff and, and all of that type of hate speech thing, if you like, uh, because they see this as a breeding ground for terrorism. Oh, really? Where's the evidence? But the other startling coincidence about that is that that comes from the Christchurch Call website and is strikingly similar to the type of information that is coming out of and the type of approach that is coming out of the disinformation project. Now, we know that a former uh, prime minister who also happened to be the chair of the socialist youth organization is heading up the call, the New Zealand's representative or was New Zealand's representative to the Christchurch call. It isn't surprising that she should um, be feeding into an outfit mm. like Disinformation Project, which has received a considerable amount of funding and contract work from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Surprise, surprise. The amazing thing is, and it's extraordinarily clever, is how, well, you and I will use these terms, neo-Marxists, activists, have an extraordinary ability at propaganda great use of words, so emotive, and can seize on fears and causes that we believe in and twist them. And so you have the terrible terrorist attack, which is then seized upon to shut down free speech. Yep. And to, exp it, and to make a huge issue that there's white supremacy everywhere you look. Yep. You have, supposedly, a deathly pandemic. And out of that grows this, again, this incredible need to control speech. And caring for the environment. All these things, like we do want to keep people healthy. We all care about public health. We all care about the environment. We all want to stop um, terrorists. We all want to stop and, and, and not live in a conflict and uh, hate-filled world. These great causes get used like a Trojan horse to bring in unbelievable controls and legislation and if you question that legislation you're labelled terrible words but you're labeled, <laughs> yes and so it's extremely clever is it not well well it is but it's not surprising because it's been the way that authoritarian governments have always worked yes 
Here's another quandary for you. Uh, it's You're on Rally Check Radio. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to retired Judge David Half. David Harvey, who writes a Halfling's View on Substack. It's a must-read. If you sit in your at home and you bemoan the state of our newspapers uh, and reports, um, you need to read the Substack because here is the analysis that we all long for. It's extraordinary to me. Well, it's not really because like you we have followed these people and studied them a little bit, not to the depth that you have, because I don't have that masochistic streak that could allow me to be a Manukau District Court judge for so many years. But you clearly have. But the neo-Marxists who don't believe in truth, who believe that everything is subjective, and that truth is what power dictates, and that those in power decide the truth. And so even, even the concept of truth to them is a social construct yep. that yes. the powerful use, particularly rich, white, privileged men who have controlled and dictated the truth for years and years and years. And so it's a they're even using that phrase misinformation and disinformation and truth. Of course, misinformation and disinformation is straight out of every tin pot dictator's playbook to deal with any criticism of their lust for power. And this is what we're seeing unfold. And here we are in a liberal democracy with this totally... What's the word? There is a word like a subversive. It's, it's, it's a, like a cancer. It will absolutely destroy us if we're allowed to take root and to grow, will it not? No, democracy contains the seeds of its own downfall. Yes. Um, the Germany found that in 1933. Yes. And, of course, we're not allowed to use those analogies, but they're often quite apt. Why not? I can never understand that. Nor can I. History is history is a great teacher. You know, come on. Um, it, it, if you can't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes. I mean, that, that's that's a trite saying. Yes, and the, true. and the labelling of one group of people as the cause of all your problems and that's unclean. Right. The use of brilliant propaganda and the rigorous enforcement of well, the, the rigorous demolition of free speech and criticism. Yeah. Chloe Swarbrick, whom I saw on um, Q&A yesterday. Um, oh, I'm pleased you brought that up. Yeah, well, um, I had to sort of take a deep breath because once you push play with Chloe, she just goes on and on and on and on and on. When confronted with an unfortunate um, uh, difficulty in her analysis, if you can call it that, um, she immediately jumps to, uh, well, that's a reductive approach. Mm. Uh, and there's always, there's always, and, and she always wants to unpack things. There's no such answer as yes or no for, for dear Chloe. But she's a classic neo Marxist, uh, uh, critical theory thinker. Well, thinker, I suppose, is, I use that word advisedly. Do you think she realizes that she is? No. Well, either, either she realizes that she is and is very, very clever at manipulating it, or alternatively, she's um, listened to the right to listen to certain people and read certain books and so on and so forth, and has adopted uh, a, a, an approach that she thinks is is um, politically for her advantage. Uh, I would like to think that she's she's very, very clever. She's extraordinarily clever. I watched that interview too. And I don't watch many uh, political interviews and I don't watch much TV, but that popped up um, in my X feed and I thought, oh, I've got to listen to this. I thought she was remarkably good. Oh, very articulate. Mm. Very articulate, extremely persuasive. And that if you hadn't had the inoculation against such thinking, 
she would be um, persuasive. Yep. But here's me having been through the COVID era, era and watched uh, how these things work out and having forced myself to wrap a wet towel around my head and study study some aspects of critical theory, you can see right through them. Mm-hmm. And you feel as though, well, I watched her and I felt that we were on an edge of a cliff with her. Mm-hmm. It's so precarious that someone aspiring to be a political leader could be so imbued with their righteousness and the rightness of themselves and the wrongness of anyone who disagrees with them, including the interviewer. Yeah, I I, I get I get your point on that. But the other thing that I think is very important is just never lose sight of it is that um, for whatever purpose uh, she says what she says or anybody says what they say, they are entitled to express their point of view. Of course. Freedom of, freedom of expression rules. Some people have said that I'm a free, freedom of expression absolutist. I'm not. I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, you're, you're, you're happy with the person who shouts fire in the crowded theatre? Of course not. <laughs> No, but okay, the, so limits, the that's, limits, the limits—that's the limit that I put on. Yeah, uh, the, if, that, if, if if you're advocating, if you're advocating uh, physical harm, imminent physical harm to any person or group of people, that's that's out of bounds. But, and and here's the key thing that we lack from John Stuart Mill: it's got to be imminent. Yes, imminent. That's well. That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes said. I mean, yes. Fire yes, it's got to be. It's got to be. Uh, I mean, and it's a tort, really, isn't it? Mm. Um, the, the, the thing that, that that is important. This is what I've been trying to do, and I put a piece up on this on my Substack this morning. Is yes, by all means, uh, Chloe and this information project and all of these people are perfectly entitled to put their point of view. I am offering you the analytical tools that you need to critically examine what they are saying and work out for yourself whether or not what they're saying is valid, good, true, acceptable, something that you should follow, something you need to follow up. That's that's what I see as one of the functions of my substack, is to assist people in analysing these interesting points of view, shall we say. Yes. But there's a fascinating thought here, isn't it? And it's the limits of reason and the extent to which we can be tolerant. And the limits of reason I I wonder about is once Hitler got going, you could be writing on the equivalent of a substack while you still could, but you'd be peeing into the Norwester. Well, in a, in a liberal democracy, as long as it lasts, and there's another comment that Oliver Wendell Holmes made, and that is that um, freedom of expression is freedom for the thought we hate. Yes, I agree. Um, and... You know, the question is... That's the only time it counts. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. It, 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 freedom of speech is nothing if you agree with it. Freedom no, of speech is easy critical to have when you disagree with it. Yes. Um, because that's when the debate starts. Yes. I, I, I certainly have some concerns for the future of a liberal democracy like the United States when out of the millions, the hundreds of millions of people that are in that country. Who <laughs> they got for president? Some old guy who gets his names mixed up and stumbles all over the place, or some other idiot who spends most of his life under a sun lamp uh, and, and tells lies. Really? Is that the best they can do? And do we really want to have either of those guys with their finger on the button? No, thank you. That's a democracy that is in trouble. But as Benjamin Franklin said, you've got a republic. See if you can keep it. Absolutely. 
But there's this interesting thing, which is the paradox of tolerance. You'll be familiar with that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Whereby you can all be tolerant, but there gets to the point where you can't be tolerant of intolerance. And I think the West has been confronted with that within, particularly when we've had um, this. I, I got to I got to phrase this cautiously, but it's this: <laughs> there, there are. It's not like me. Well, um, radical Islam. There's a degree to which you cannot allow radical Islam to take root and grow because it's antithetical to the values of a liberal democracy. And I'd always had a view that the values of a liberal democracy would always win out because I found them agreeable. It's where my reason led me. It's where our shared judo-Christian Western view takes us. But now I'm not so sure. It's the same when we elevate uh, tribal Maori spiritual beliefs and put them into our schools. And I'm looking at that and thinking, these views are not allowed to be criticized. You're not allowed to criticize radical Islamic faith. You're not allowed to criticize uh, a Maori worldview. And therefore, that why should I tolerate or be tolerant of a set of views that are intolerant? Okay. If I can use Chloe's word, let me unpack that. Please. Um, you're not allowed to criticise uh, radical Islam, okay? The answer to your criticism of radical Islam, the minute that you open your mouth and start talking about it is, oh, but that's Islamophobic. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, if you start to say, let's let's have a look at, at Tao Maori and examine whether or not this is, in fact, the way that we want to go, the answer that you get is, oh, that's racist. Agreed. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Those two words are what we call veto words. Yes. Okay. They shut down the discussion immediately. Uh, you can't you can't carry on unless you're prepared to navigate your way around the Islamophobia or racism or the anti-trans or whatever. Um, you you can't carry on because they, those words will be used to shut the discussion down. They're cancel words, and cancel it's all part of the cancel culture. It's all part of the neo-Marxist approach, the critical theory approach. It all resolves back to that. A Marcuse in 1964. Correct. But it's not just words, is it? I could take being called a racist. I could take being called Islamophobia. But what is hard to take is losing your job. Oh, yeah. Losing your social standing. Having your business destroyed. That's happening now. Yep. It's not that the intolerant are just calling us names. They're actually destroying us mm -hmm. economically and socially and personally. And yeah, I, had a, I had a bit of a debate last week about um, a, a sort of associated issue within the context of freedom of expression. And um, I said that my view was that freedom of conscience uh, preceded freedom of expression. Yes. My uh, interlocutor, if I can put it that way, suggested that I had it around the wrong way and that freedom of expression came first and freedom of conscience followed that. The problem that you have, and I, I um, 
I came into contact with this um, when I was doing my PhD studies because what I was looking at was um, law and technology and I was looking at the impact of the printing press upon the development of law. And one of the things that, and, and the period of time that I was looking at it was from 1475 through to 1642. And that was the time of the English Revolution. That would have been wonderful because the parallel to the internet. Oh, yeah. It's, there, there's a lot to it. But what, what I found there was the way in which, uh, and they didn't have <laughs> free speech or anything mm. like that, but what they did focus on, and what, what the English uh, Revolution, one of the things that was, was underpinned the English Revolution um, and the Civil War in 1642 and following, was all about freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of belief, what you believe in. And my view is that, that and, and part of that involved the printing press and the type of stuff that you could put out and the way in which um, the printing press was censored and um, the way in which the Stuarts in particular tried to control um, the, the, the printing press. But, but that, that's a story for another time. But it all had to do with freedom of conscience and exactly the same things that you've described, people losing their jobs and, and, and all of the rest of it, happened to um, uh, Catholic recusants in Elizabethan England. Um, you know, if you didn't if you didn't conform to the party line, to the Protestant line, you were in trouble. And the way that they did it, and it was rather cunning, uh, was that um, the Queen was the head of the church, or the King Henry VIII was the head of the church. Um, the minute you start um, putting forward some kind of alternative approach to religious doctrine, you are uh, criticising the monarch. Hey, that's treason. Mm. <laughs> it was very sudden. Um, there was Hilary Mantel's second book about Thomas Cromwell was called Bring Up the Bodies. And that was because when a person was accused of treason, just accused of treason, they were deemed to be legally dead. Wow. So bring up the bodies means, well, you know, they're just a body. You know, all we need to do is take their head off or disembowel them or do but something. But the parallel to present day is perfect. Oh, yeah. You only have to be accused of being a racist. Yep. And you're dead. You're out. You're in trouble. Um, it makes for, it must make for workplaces and social settings problematic and a lot less fun. Oh, yeah. If you were a judge now, you would be checking yourself in the common room unless you had trusted colleagues, which you probably did. But in any social setting, it's not just a hot mic anymore. It's not just an interview. It could be a passing comment mm -hmm. in an elevator that sees you accused and destroyed without your day in court. Oh, absolutely! Throwaway lines is um, is deadly, and and you know there are occasions when when judges, even in open court, may um, yes, uh, allow themselves that. allow themselves a throwaway line, and mm. oh, um, yeah. And of course, it's so stultifying, isn't it, that you can't sit there and I when I avoid you know common rooms and staff rooms and workplaces. They've always been such fun, pubs. They've always been such fun because of the banter. Yeah. And the banter is thoughtless in a way. Things are out of your mouth before you've thought through. You're not sitting there and thinking, who could hear this and take offence? You know, the Chloe Swarbrooks who are so mm -hmm. easily offended. Um, they... You, so you find yourself, and this is what I've loved actually about this radio show, the first time for years, I feel just able to talk. Yep. Well, uh, just to give you an example, a relative of ours was over in the weekend, and um, he said, do you remember Billy T. James? Oh, my goodness, yes. And um, we said, yeah, <laughs> of course. 
um, along with the you know the 1980s, which were a good time, despite what Alan Park says. Um, and uh, he said, oh, "I've just found this on YouTube. Do you mind if we have a look?" And and I said to my wife after he died, I said, "Do you think we could ever see anything like that on television today?" She said, "Not a chance." Not a chance. And yet it was hilarious. Yes. I mean, there were so many sacred cows that he took a, sh a shot Well, at. that's what a comedian's role was. Of course it is. You know, to take the mickey out of those in power, yeah. take the mickey about the shibboleths and beliefs that people have, yeah. and to make us laugh at ourselves. Yeah. And he didn't have, in his comedy, I didn't know the guy, but in his comedy, there wasn't a hint of malice. No, no, it wasn't. It tell wasn't me, it wasn't hateful. Tell me, I feel when I look at um, the persecution you could get for stepping out of line, for having wrong think and wrong speak. We're at the stage now where you can lose your business, you can lose your job you can lose your social standing. I don't want to be alarmist, but you're not that far away from actually chopping hands off and worse. Nope. It's a short step, isn't it? Mm -hmm. For sure. I, I, I get the sense from you, Judge. I, I should say to everyone that's uh, barely check radio, real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to judge retired Judge David Harvey. I've got to put the retired and not to signify his senior years, but to <laughs> signify that don't worry about writing a letter off to the Minister of Justice. Nothing can happen. <laughs> or the Attorney General um, or the Prime Minister. Uh, judge David Harvey has the honorary, honorific of judge, which I like using. And it's both courteous, but also it's well, funny, because we have a judge speaking out, speaking his mind, but he's a former judge. That's the point. Um, we're talking to Judge David Harvey. Um, I actually, in that in that run up, I have completely lost my 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 thread. But I wondered about. Oh, that. <laughs> I know what it was. I know what it was. Right. I was going to say, you strike me as a person very much like me which is probably why we're getting on so well. But because, you know, I'm old, white, male, privileged. But like me, I suspect you have a great love of the law. Oh, yes, absolutely. And a great respect for the law as what allows a society to jog along to prosper, and to be free. The rule of law, absolutely critical. And that you have this real justice in it for uh, that's blind and respects the most powerless without fear or favour and holds the powerful to account. That's a wonderful thing of the law. It's so beautiful. It is so magnificent. The fact that it's conservative and mm. its interpretation and application makes it wonderful. And we've had the greatest minds apply themselves to tricky things and draw on deep principles to apply the law in new and novel ways which prove durable. You must be horrified at the state of our legislation. Um, By which I mean... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. The use of the... the well, the over-legislation of society. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, oh, too many And rules. second of no. all, legislation being used for a social purpose, not to allow people to prosper and to be free, but to a social end and to separate us, to divide us, all these different things that are occurring within our law. 
Well, um, so yeah, much... I, can, I can give you an example yes, please. Of, of, of that. Um, and it's happening right now, and the Select Committee is sitting on it on Thursday. The Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, which uh, basically sets up a compelled bargaining process. Now, how come you? How, how, how can you have a bargain that is compelled? I mean, it, it, it's it's an oxymoron. But anyway, it is a compelled bargaining process, so that news media will get payments from Google, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and and the big platforms for using uh, their content uh, on on their search programs and so on and so forth. Now, in some respects, um, this is the successor to the um, um, uh, journalism uh, handout that the previous government did, yes. the, the journalism uh, fund that the previous government had, that, that basically subsidised uh, news media to the tune of about $105 million. Now, and, and subject to certain conditions, of course, that they had to fulfil before they got, got the money. Now, what is happening is that the PIJF is coming to an end, uh, or has come to an end. This is another subsidy scheme. Mm for news media, only instead of the government subsidising it, they're setting up the process whereby platforms subsidise the news media. Now, sorry, I'm an economic Darwinist. If they can't survive, they don't deserve to survive. We do need the news media, but really what they should do is that they should start uh, getting on board as far as the digital paradigm is concerned, rather than uh, asking the people who are on board with the digital paradigm to prop them up. It's a bit like asking the Ford Motor Company in its early form to subsidise blacksmiths. Yep, exactly. There's been a transformation occur, and here's the fascinating thing. I have better access to news than I've ever had in my entire life. It's no longer the morning newspaper, morning report, and midday news and TV One News at night. Yep. What it is is reading, literally from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Judge David Harvey's thoughts. I can I can follow great journalists who are making a bomb, uh, writing freely on X. Yeah. Um. And of course. They are totally, and here's a 77-year-old judge who's studied the printing press, studied the internet, and who's writing great articles that you'd never see in the mainstream media. Yeah, and um, the thing the thing about it, though, Rodney, is this. They've got this, this compelled bargaining process. They're going to set up another bureaucracy to administer it. They don't need it because there's a there's a piece of legislation called the Copyright Act 1993. Yes. And that provides a system of licensing whereby the media could license their content for use by Google, Facebook, etc., etc., for a fee. Come on, it's already there. Mm. Uh, why do we need yet another bureaucracy? Well, of course, it was introduced by the Labour government. So, you know, are, are we surprised? Of course not. Um, Tell me, is the disinformation project now dead? No. No, it's not, um, in the sense that their website is still up. Their last uh, paper that was published, um, I think, was around about October of last year. Um, I think they're still, they're still going. And I have some queries, some questions that I have asked about the funding that the disinformation project has been receiving, the future funding that they might be receiving. Uh, I would like to think that uh, the present government uh, will basically cut them loose. And if they want to continue, then they can get their funding from private organizations um, you know, who, who uh, subscribe to their particular uh, point of view. But I really don't think they should be getting any government funding at all, if indeed they're getting any at the moment. It's tough to be a government right now because you have these 
what would you call it, these university academics who write as supposedly haughty, unbiased arbiters of what's right and good and what's true and false everywhere you look. And we have a media who don't seem to believe in news and reporting both sides, repeating this academia in some sort of circle, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you and I have long given up following the legacy media other than for a giggle and entertainment and fodder for our columns. But you feel that Mr. Luxon and the government have to be mindful of the media. And that is actually a huge anchor around their neck. Not in the sense that the media are holding them to account and being providing a critique, but rather the media has got an ideological view to which the government doesn't fit. Well, I think that you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of your um, <coughs> journalistic ability. It's the best you can do is to compare speeches that were made at Waiting in 2023 and 2024 <laughs> to see if there are any common paragraphs. I mean, come on. And the, making a story out of it. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it just shows that you can make a story out of a pig's ear. But um, the, way that I, the, way, the way that I see it, being as favourable as I can to Mr. Luxon, is that at least he's staying on message. That's right. <laughs> and I mean, um, something. Which, which is, as, a, as a CEO, he wants to do. And it's like going to church on a Sunday. It bears yep. repeating. Yep. Tell me, uh, off topic, but we both watched it. You've written on Hamas. Yes. What did you make of Chloe Swarbrook's? This is why I watched it. What did you make of her defense of her chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free? Naive. Naive. And furthermore, I don't think Jack Tame asked the question which really needed to be asked, which is, and if Palestine is free and does occupy what uh, the, the land that Israel currently occupies, what happens to its inhabitants? That's the question. That's what it really means. It, not, it doesn't just mean Palestine must be free. It means get rid of the Jews. Yeah. And it's anti-Semitic. It is grossly anti-Semitic. And to, for, the, for the folks who were critical of, of Chloe to say that we were offended and so on and so forth would be, in my view, dramatically understating the case. It is hate speech. I had John Minter on the show, which was uh, very good. It would have been interesting. <laughs> it was very interesting, and I got a lot of pushback because I'm 100% stand with Israel. And I had John Minto on, and he was great. He he had his point of view, and he presented it well. Interestingly, his view was, you just have Palestine, and because you have democracy, and you impose a liberal democracy, everyone gets to vote, and everyone's happy, and they all jog along happily together. And I was listening to this, thinking, does he not listen to what the Palestinian leadership say, to what everyday Palestinians say, and to what they've done? Yeah. And what their masters in Iran say as well. Because this, this isn't a little jog along. I mean, from the river to the sea, Palestine being free is absolutely the total destruction of the Jewish people in Israel. Yep. And the destruction of the Israeli state. Yes. Which was established in 1948 by a United Nations vote, who now doesn't seem to be too interested in, in, in their creation. So Chloe admitted to being told that this was offensive. And as you say, that's like saying, oh, you called me a man when I'm actually a, now a woman, right? That's what you think of as being offensive, mm. which is pretty lighthearted. 
relative to the weighty matters at stake here. And then she says, yes, uh, tell me if it, I've been, she has been through some process with the Human Rights Commission where they've pulled her up for, mm -hmm. quote, hate speech. She didn't blink an eye. No. That's not naive. Because if you were naive, oh, I didn't realize. I won't say that again. She doubled down. You got me going now, David. She doubled down and said we need to lean into this to make people feel uncomfortable. Did she not? Yeah, well, um, anti-Semitism has been with us for over 2,000 years, so I don't suppose we should be too surprised. I guess I am. I've, you know, I, I, I have hoped after... 1946 and with the formation of Israel in 1948 that we got past that. Mm. But we haven't. It is clear that for some reason or another the world has not got past that and I think that's a crying shame. And, and you know, people who, who, who say, oh, you know, we'd rather not talk about the Holocaust. No, you must talk about the Holocaust because that way you can realise just exactly where this is going to lead in its ultimate destination. Um, and that there is something that can readily be rotten in our own hearts. Yep. And that good people can do terrible things. Yep. And that we have a set of states around Israel dedicated to its utter destruction and extermination. Yes. yes. These aren't these aren't debatable points. No. <laughs> it's, you know, but it's the power of our mind to have our theory hmm. and to make our world fit to the theory. Yeah. And so the idea that a Chloe has, I've come to conclude, is that the Western way, the white man's way, is all wrong. Hmm. Rich countries are bad and have impoverished poor countries. Israel is rich, and funny enough, they think it's white. Um, because it's rich, it must be. And it's propped up by the great Satan, America, and therefore it must be wrong. And then we have, in their narrative, indigenous people. I mean, it's all crazy, right? Yep. The Palestinians. And then they're somehow, um, they're somehow trapped in a prison. And that becomes the entire story and what well, you, you you and then they use the word genocide Israel's committing a genocide I have no idea what it means to totally destroy the use of the word yep cheap to base the currency of the word that's what they're doing yes Yes, and of course, debasing that currency means you can't actually use it when it's actually happening. No. You can't, you know, genocides are an everyday thing now. We had genocide here in New Zealand, apparently. Um, and it's like racism. You and I have read a little bit of history, and we know what racism looks like and is. It's not this little bit of offence in the street business, is it? And, of course, in debasing the uses of these words, they also ameliorate things like the Holocaust, the Jim Crow laws, the bad things that have happened in New Zealand. It sort of just gets yep. muddied. Yep. Tell me, uh, Judge... David Harvey, what do you write in the listener every fortnight? I have a little column called Law and Society. Mm -hmm. um, 600 words, not a lot you can do with that. Um, I've uh, written about three strikes. I wrote about the wealth tax. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Yes. <laughs> they, they, that, that prompted a whole lot of um, responses. I thought the best one... Uh, that I read that they actually published was, aren't we pleased that uh, David Harvey is a retired district court? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can clearly take the criticism. 
I thought that I thought that was brilliant. I, I really thought that was very good. <laughs> so they while I was, they obviously um, haven't read my work. <laughs> I was um, while I was listening to you, I realised that I've been doing you a disservice because I should be calling you Judge Doctor David Harvey because you say you have a PhD. I don't know whether I'd put the doctor first or the judge first. Um. Oh, the doctor thing you don't need to worry about, right? Well, and I should also correct up some misinformation because I have not got a PhD. I thought you did. I know. You, I could see why you'd be think that. No. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I'm, I, only, I'm uneducated, really. No, I thought, I, I don't know where I got that from. But yeah. for but years was, and years and years, I, I've, I've been misinformed. Yeah, been misinformed and spreading oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually. Spread, I don't know that Rodney Hyde comes up in conversation. No, now, well, apart from apart from their suppression Hyde, but <laughs> <laughs> and here you are, here you are um, <clears throat> on 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 uh, Reality Check Radio, elevating me to this esteemed uh, place. No, and and I have not got a PhD, so um, I felt I, uh, the need. I didn't want to correct you at the time, but I didn't want to um, take the honour that I do not deserve. Judge David Harvey, it has been an absolute pleasure. I love your substack. I'm afraid I didn't know you wrote for the listener. I have to say I didn't know the listener still existed. <laughs> <laughs> the last listener I read had Tom Scott in it, which was probably Oh, dear. <laughs> um, and um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for I would love to think Judge, that you would come on again next time you write something in Substack and share with us because it's wonderful. You have a great depth and breadth of views. And I know our listeners would be enjoy you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much, Rodney. I, I, I intend to try and keep a piece coming out on Substack each week. So, Good on you. Yeah. There we have it. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking to retired Judge David Harvey. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful sense of humour. We don't have it. We've lost it. We've got to get it back. Sense of humour is everything. It's along with freedom of expression and the ability to be wrong. We've got to allow ourselves to be wrong and in error. And also that we should be able to talk freely without having to check ourselves. It was so wonderful to talk to him in a way that we could talk just freely, like we always can, on Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.